1: That's stamps.com, code program.
2: Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. I'm a big fan of the original two seasons of Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo, the cartoon, followed the adventures of a group of teenagers and their dog as they encountered many allegedly paranormal situations and tried to get to the bottom of them. It almost always turned out that the mysterious phenomena were being caused by criminals faking the events to cover up their crimes. When I was growing up, I think the three biggest influences on me from the world of fiction were Sherlock Holmes, Mr. Spock, and Velma Dinkley. In the original series, Velma was always the voice of reason and pursued an evidence-based interpretation of whatever mystery the gang was investigating. I mention this because it was with considerable disappointment that I walked through my own living room to encounter my children listening to this. A
1: crazy mummified corpse whispering Nibiru is creepy times ten. It gets creepier. Mm -hmm. I googled it and found a lot, namely this. Nibiru is a planet listed in the writings of Zachariah Sitchin, particularly his book The Twelfth Planet. According to Sitchin's interpretation of Babylonian religious texts, a giant planet called Nibiru passes by Earth every 3600 years and allows its sentient inhabitants to interact with humanity. These beings, which Sitchin identified with the Anunnaki of Sumerian myth, would become humanity's first gods. My favorite internet encyclopedia says there's supposed to be a collision. The Nibiru collision is a disastrous encounter between the Earth and a large planetary object. <laughs> Believers in this doomsday event usually refer to this object as Planet X or Nibiru. The, 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 the doomsday event? It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man
0: Talk.
2: Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stolzner.
2: Long-time Monster Talk listeners will know a few things about me. For instance, that I'm a fan of the scientific method, but I'm also an enthusiastic consumer of paranormal-themed media. This is part of my lifelong love affair with monsters, UFOs, the paranormal, and the kind of odd events they call Fortiana, after Charles Fort, one of history's most prolific chroniclers of such material. But as these topics go, I think the ancient aliens idea is one that I'm most frustrated with because of the way it undermines people's understanding of where technology comes from and how innovation works. Innovation comes through countless tiny iterations and advances. They're hard-fought wins and often lost and then have to be rediscovered again. And when we see ancient people accomplishing amazing feats of engineering and architecture, we should conclude that they had developed their tools and techniques to the level capable of such accomplishment Not that space aliens came down and guided them on how to stack rocks. The archaeological evidence supports this approach. The historical evidence supports this approach. The History Channel does not seem to support this approach, but that's a different problem. And as if the ancient alien hypothesis weren't pernicious enough, now we find it bridled with a recurring apocalypse scenario involving a rogue planet and the ancient writings from Sumer and Acadia. In this episode, we'll be discussing the works of Zechariah Sitchin by talking to Dr. Michael Heiser, who's put a lot of effort into trying to set the record straight on the actual contents of ancient tablets that allegedly formed the basis of the Nibiru ancient astronauts concepts proposed by Sitchin. This will be followed by a second episode in the very near future where we'll talk with an astronomer about rogue planets. But for now, it's time for some Monster Talk. Dr. Michael S. Heiser is a biblical scholar. He's currently the scholar-in-residence for Logos Bible Software. He's also a professor of biblical studies and is actively involved in a Christian ministry to reach out to people who've adopted paranormalist worldviews. In that work, he's become perhaps the most prominent critic of the work of Zechariah Sitchin. He's been a repeat guest on the Coast to Coast AM radio show, but now he's really arrived as we welcome him to Monster Talk. Thanks so much for joining us today, Michael.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm Michael. Glad to be uh, listening to both of you. I mean, I love the show, so I'm thrilled to be oh, here. Thank
2: you. Well, thanks a lot. Good to have I really you.
1: appreciate that. I, I tell you,
2: I, I've been interested in uh, Sitchin and his sort of impact on the paranormal and ancient astronaut topic for a while, but what really set me off that I, I just had to reach yeah. out to you was I was walking through the living room the other day and I heard my kids watching a a cartoon and suddenly they started talking about Nibiru and Planet X and the work of Zechariah Sitchin and it was Scooby-Doo. And it was wow. Velma. Velma was validating Sitchin, <laughs> and I about lost my mind.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a whole lot worse than having Freddy do it. Right? it well, right, <laughs>
2: right, exactly, or Shaggy, or even Scooby. But, uh, yeah, so, <laughs> uh,
0: you know, So they seem to use a matter of urgency. It's, it, right, we've got to save the kids. So, that's a,
1: that's <laughs> astonishing.
2: It really is. You know, the show's sort of deviated from its original uh, uh, premise, which was a very skeptical kind of show to begin with, especially the first two seasons. Um, and then they added Scrappy Doo, and I think a lot lost a lot of viewers. But the uh, uh, the, right. <laughs> the new season sort of mixes up uh, uh, sort of fictional things with real things, and uh, they that that but, sort of fell into the realm of uh, I think giving a, an unusual credence to Sitchin that I don't think is really a good idea. But, let, but
0: did your kids ask about it afterwards? Oh no, no, no! They, no. they, they were just was- enjoying
1: the show until I paused right. and gave them a lecture. But. <laughs> <laughs> it's really one of those things like do i say something and draw attention to this or do do i just kind of let it go exactly so but uh, just
2: assuming that uh, i think a lot of our listeners will be sort of aware of the peripheral effects of Sitchin's work let's just assume that not everyone knows about him so let's start off our discussion with who is zechariah Sitchin, or who was he i guess he has actually passed away so
1: well, that's really a good question, because if you actually try to find a CV or a bio uh, online uh, for Sitchin, good luck. I mean, there, there just isn't much there. Um, he was a journalist, again, but what does that mean? Uh, so you know, apparently he was he was Russian or had some Jewish descent, uh, you know, was a journalist, and uh, wasn't known for any of those things. It, it was really only when he started writing um, you know, books like *The Twelfth Planet*, again, espousing uh, an ancient astronaut worldview that he really became known. But what sort of distinguished him from somebody like von Daniken? You know, his, I think, it started with his publisher on the back of his books, and I don't know if he sort of positioned himself this way, but he was kind of cast as an ancient languages scholar, and you know, he would he would do things with languages and texts in the books that uh, sort of transcended what von Daniken was doing. And so he, he came across as kind of a, a scholar figure or, you know, an, uh, an expert figure where, you know, von Daniken wasn't. So it sort of gave him this kind of air of authority. Um, and, and to be honest with you, when you're doing stuff like that, you know, you're saying, oh, well, this cuneiform sign means this. And, you know, the, the ancient texts say that, like, like who's going to check up on you? Um, so it, it really not only gave him this air of authority, but it, you know, in the absence of anyone that could really, uh, critique him or bother to critique him, you know, he, you know, he really gained quite a, a big audience, uh, for what he was doing.
0: And do we have any idea of how he became involved in this area? And
1: yeah, I, I, I don't really know, you know, what, what specifically was the trigger point? Um, I I kind of look at Sitchin as somebody who, you know, came up with this approach or the you know this set of ideas probably again through the influence of other uh, ancient astronaut people because mm-hmm. uh, you know, the idea is pretty old it's it's older than von Daniken obviously but um, you know and you you yourself have gone through on other shows you know talking about people like ray palmer and science fiction i mean he picked it up somewhere but i view him as as someone who sort of came to see certain things in text or i think imagine them in there and then mm-hmm. came to believe his own mythology especially when it starts selling like hotcakes i mean you're gonna Go it, it's it's really going to influence um sort of your own attitude toward what you're doing mm-hmm. but i don't to me that's not ethically good, but it's not sort of the conspiratorial sinister stuff that I've heard other people say about Sitchin That gets really bizarre.
2: That's cracking open a can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> well
1: I've I've had people I've had people on the what would we call it, sort of the, the, the paranormal speaking circuit um either tell me at a conference or, or even call me on the phone and tell me how you know sitchin was really a paid disinformation agent of the NSA or the CIA or the he was an illuminatist or you know all this kind of stuff you know uh, making him kind of out to be uh, a hand picked disinformation agent to perpetuate a certain message you know that the uh, that some government or some elitist insider you know, wanted him to uh, perpetuate. And, and he has this dark uh, sort of occultish sort of history to him. Um, you know, whatever. It, it, I don't really see any sort of evidence for that. Not that I was interested enough to go track it down. I, I, I think it's just more. Uh, it's just easier to believe that he found a good way to make a living doing stuff and basically sitting at home writing books and becoming popular and wealthy through it. So why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that just seems to be a lot easier uh, to understand. Sort of an Occam's razor approach there. Yeah.
0: So uh, presumably people are coming up to you and telling you these things because you're <laughs> well known for your website, which is stitchiniswrong.com.
1: Yeah. So
0: um, can you tell us a little bit about uh about your website and just some of the theories of stitchins that you've treated.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna. I'll have to correct you on his name because people have corrected me. Okay. Uh, it's it's stitchin, s i t c h i n, but it's easy to 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 say stitchin or or spell it with an e at the end. Uh, uh, or, or or an i. I mean, it it really it's a tough you know sort of you know word to to get. Well, spelled. I'm getting
0: to that that age, too, where I need glasses, so everything's looking a bit blurry from here.
2: Avoid 40. (laughs) That's my advice. Avoid 40. Everything
0: just goes downhill. Too late. late.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, he's wrong about that. (laughs) Sitchin is wrong, S-I-T-C-H-I-N, and then is wrong. Yeah, it's sort of a…
0: Karen is wrong. Right.
1: I mean… It, it, I'll have to admit this was an inflammatory thing to call a website, but I guess I just, you know, got the domain name on a bad day. You know, I was just irritated <laughs> or something. But yeah, I have a lot of people ask about it, and and you know, some of it's angry, some of it's just curious. Um, but it was really born uh, in in the last year of my of my uh, you know graduate. You know, program as far as taking prelims. I took my prelim exams, and I'm supposed to start on my dissertation. I had a topic, and but I was kind of burned out. And so, in our department, we sort of had a history, an informal history of the, the people who pass prelims basically check out for a year mentally and do something that's fun. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'm go- I'm going to write a novel. You know, I I hadn't ever done that before, and I just was just throwing a lot of stuff in the blender. I've I've always you know kind of like like the two of you always been interested in strange stuff and you know paranormal stuff and so I, I thought well let's throw that in the blender and I have a command of ancient texts and languages we'll throw that in there and just sort of see what comes out and so I wrote this sci-fi novel called The Facade which is, it's partly dealing with ancient astronaut stuff and you know alien stuff and whatnot and I've, I've wound up Somehow, I mean, it's, it's actually kind of a funny, bizarre story of how I wound up on Coast to Coast AM because I had listened to this show through graduate school. It kept me awake. I worked third shift uh, at night. And, and to actually wind up on the show was just kind of crazy. But I, it was for this novel. So we, we did this show in the novel. Well, after that, I started to get emails, lots of emails and a few bizarre phone calls as well about this guy. Zechariah Sitchin well I, I didn't really know who he was so I looked him up and it, he sounded like a kindred spirit oh ancient languages and he's interested in this stuff well I gotta got read that so I read the 12th planet and just wanted to die um, you know, I, it was just, it's just one of those things that you read like I don't even know where to begin it's like mm-hmm. every page has a problem you know but I, I thought well since I am interested in this since I am sort of what Sitchin pretends to be Uh, you know, in this ancient language stuff, I'll make a website. So I made this website, SitchinIsWrong.com, and went through some of his major ideas. And, I mean, basically, to sort of encapsulate the kind of thing he says, uh, he purports to, again, be an adept at translating the ancient Sumerian tablets and Mesopotamian material and, you know, other stuff too. But his focus is the Mesopotamian stuff. And his reading and his translations of this material produces a narrative where we have um, a, a group of gods, the Anunnaki, which is a, an actual Sumerian term. Uh, but in Sitchin's retelling of the material about the Anunnaki, they come from a planet called Nibiru which is a rogue planet beyond you know, the, the, the reaches of Pluto. And it cycles through our solar system every 3,600 years or so. And on one of these trips through the solar system, they, they got off at Earth. And they, they, they came to Earth because the Anunnaki were interested in, A, creating a slave race, which wound up to be humans, and B, we we're going to use those humans to mine gold, um, you know, because we, I guess, we just like gold, or we need gold to do something else, and so this was the, the story that Sitchin saw in the uh, in the tablets, and he produced like a, a, a cylinder seal that purportedly shows the sun surrounded by eleven planets. And see, there's there for them they were twelve planets because they counted the sun and the moon, and then there's this extra one. And you know, it, basically, he creates an alien. Uh, mythology out of the cuneiform material and that's why we get talk about the Anunnaki and their spaceships and supposedly again the Bible has you know proof of the Anunnaki presence in it and again that that's his basic narrative that, that humanity was created by extraterrestrials and those extraterrestrials are the Anunnaki and their home planet is Nibiru and that, it's probably going to cycle through here at, at some time again and that that sort of has has spawned a little bit of a, a cottage industry about Planet X mythology. Uh, we we heard a lot of this in twenty twelve. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you if you guys are friends with uh, Stuart Robbins. Yes, good friend. It's, yeah, just just a great podcast, pseudo astronomy. Stuart has a whole series on Planet X nonsense, and I, you know, I regularly uh, link to his material on on. Uh, on my blog because you know here's somebody who has an expertise in that area that takes the time to to basically suffer through hours (laughs) (laughs) of of this kind of stuff. you deserve some kind of credit for that but he produces you know a good analysis he tries to be nice he's he's basically nicer than i am you know when it when it comes to this kind of thing but sitchin you know sort of spawned a, a lot of that talk and You know, it's really traceable to his book, *The Twelfth Planet*. um, But he can't be—we can't tar and feather Sitchin for all of what's said about Planet X. But he's certainly an important touchpoint for it.
2: Yeah, that's um, so. There seems to be a cyclical nature to the Planet X worries. So, so every time there's a new news story about astronomers finding an exoplanet. It seems to fire up the uh, Planet X fans. And the, there it is. There's Nibiru. See?
1: See? There you go. He was right.
2: <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and it, it's coming this way. And, and I'm not sure exactly. There, there's sort of two astronomical uh, things that bug me. One is the like the significance of the planets lining up, the syzygy type of event, because it doesn't seem to really have any impact. I think people don't understand how far away the planets are from each other. That's a... Fun, they, they think of the little you know, solar system from their elementary class and don't realize the planets are really, really far away.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: And uh, and the other thing is this idea that some rogue planet is just going to sneak into the solar system with uh, nobody noticing it. Like it's going to, I don't know what exactly. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, something, I, something, and then something happens, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, I'm not an astronomer and I don't know much about astronomy, but I do know there are tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of amateur astronomers out there who who really do have a a, a reasonable to high level of skill, you know, and, and interest, and they put a lot of time into observing the sky. And and so it, it's just absurd to think, like you said, if there's some rogue planet drifting in here, that somebody's you know, it's going to escape everyone's attention. You know that, that that no one would would notice this and report it. You know, like like the NSA is going to track down this one person who's looking and you know show up at their door and intimidate them. And it it's just ridiculous. You know that this stuff goes out on you know astronomy forums and, and sites almost instantly because hey, I saw this. Did anybody else see it? That's just a natural reflex. You know, for that community. And, and you know, it, it's just. It's the most unreasonable thing. Uh, one of the most unreasonable things I've I've heard in a long time to suggest that this would go unnoticed. Mm-hmm. But as Agnes Stewart's, you know, I mean, the, several of the episodes he's done, like with Nancy Leader, you know, how this, this this planet could disguise itself or you know, blend into the background. Or, I mean, yeah. Come on, you know, it's sending it... like some of the Bigfoot
0: theories about hyperdimensional <inaudible> <laughs> UH, being hyperdimensional things like that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it, it it's just it's just so odd, and of course it assumes that that if it actually had mass, like it wouldn't have a whole range of effects, you know, on on you know not only Earth but on you know other things in in, in near proximity. I mean, it, it just doesn't make any sense at all. But I can't critique it, you know, from an astronomy you know point of view. That that's why I depend on. People like Stewart to do what they're doing, and I'm really thankful that he does it. But from the ancient text perspective, I can tell you right now that you actually can, you know, look up all the places where Nibiru is mentioned in, you know, cuneiform tablets, and it does not cycle through the solar system every 3,600 years. In fact, there's one astrolabe uh, in the in the uh, astronomical text that has Nibiru showing up every year. You know, Nibiru is is associated with Jupiter in one text. It's associated with Mercury in another. In, in other texts, it's just called a star. So it, it can't be all of those things. It, it you know, what what the term must denote is some sort of astronomical event mm-hmm. that gets associated with various celestial bodies and and you know various. It means crossing. Something like crossing. Um, at its heart, and so it probably probably marks a celestial event or some kind of crossing of one, you know, body with another in the imaginary planes, the way astronomers, you know, look at things. So, you know, it, it has nothing to do with a planet beyond Pluto that cycles through our solar system every 3,600 years. You literally can't find that in the texts. Uh, and it, it's not that difficult to find this stuff, like the you know the the multi I think there but it's about 40 volumes the Chicago Assyrian dictionary uh, this massive work that took 70 years or whatever it was it actually just just got finished but they put every volume in PDF online for free and it's in transliteration so I, there are videos on, on my site I do I do exciting things on my website like take screen capture videos of Mike going to these websites and showing people where to find information to check up on such I mean, the, the, the video is boring. I mean, let's be honest, but it, but it's effective. I mean, in, in one of them, I, I go, Mike visits the electronic text corpus of Sumerian literature where they probably get 10 hits a year. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's just one of these things that it's there because somebody gave money for it to exist <laughs> And, and so, you know, you go I go up there, I type, okay, here's how you type in Anunnaki, and here's how you transliterate the Sumerian. You hit the button, and then it runs the search, and you get a whole list of all the places where the Anunnaki are mentioned. And you click on the little TR next to the line, that's your English translation, and you can go read it. And if you read it, again, this I'm, I'm sort of infamous for saying things like this, but I actually it's It's intentional. I actually mean it. I'm trying to help. Where I said, if you actually go read all of those instances, you will find that none of Sitchin's fundamental claims about the Anunnaki being from Nibiru and again, going to earth and doing this or that, none of these things are actually in the tablets. So the mm-hmm. question isn't, oh, Mike disagrees with Zechariah Sitchin's translations. It's one translator against another. No, what I'm actually saying is that the stuff he think he says he's translating literally doesn't exist. Like it's just fabricated. It's pretty and, damning. Well, it, it it is. Again, it's a boring video. Who wants to watch Mike narrate where his mouse moves on a screen? Okay, but but it, it's effective because I don't want people to just say, "Oh, well, I, I got to take Mike's word against Sitchin's word." No. no. Go look for yourself. Mm -hmm. Just do the search, hit the button, read the results. And how easy would it be to make Mike go away if you found one line of one text that actually says what Sitchin says it says? Okay, Mike would have to go away. But you're not going to find that. So I, I challenge you to just do it and you'll find out that's, you know, quote unquote, let's be cliche here. Sitchin is wrong dot com. It's not spectacular. There's no magic uh, in mm-hmm. this. It's just taking people back to primary sources and asking them to look.
0: So I guess the big question here is was Sitchin actually able to read these ancient languages?
1: Yeah, I, this is probably one of the more inflammatory things I've said on online and on other other shows. I don't think Sitchin could could work in any of the ancient languages. Now, if he was Jewish, you know, he could. I would have to assume he could sight read Hebrew. But here's the illustration I use for people as as to why that doesn't matter for what he's doing. Okay, let, let's just take the Bible. All right, Old Testament. Oh, Sitchin can read, you know, sight-read the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Oh, that's great. My my six-year-old can sight-read the English Bible. Okay, my six-year-old is not a biblical scholar. My okay. six-year-old cannot work in the grammar of the text, even though right. he or she can sight-read the material. Mm-hmm. So being able to read something, and we all, we've all had the... Probably their horrific experience. I mean, I actually liked it because I'm, I'm a language geek. But most people, when you ask them to think about the English classes they had and diagramming sentences, mm-hmm. they just shudder and you know want you to just shut up. You know, <laughs> bringing back terrible memories. But but to do you know any kind of literary analysis, grammatical analysis, you know what what used to be called philology. Again, just mm-hmm. just working with ancient texts. That's a whole lot more than sight reading. Uh, You have to know what interpretive questions to ask, and you have to be able to analyze what's going on at a grammatical or linguistic level. And I don't think Sitchin could do any of that in in any of these languages, because in his books, he makes fundamental errors uh, of that kind of analysis. So I have to conclude that, okay, you you probably could read Hebrew, because from what I've been able to find, you're you're Jewish. So even that's not a guarantee. A lot of people, a lot of Jewish people I know can't read Hebrew, but a lot of them of course can. So that's like a coin flip. Mm -hmm. But let's just give you that one. Uh, Can you actually do this kind of work that we have to do in graduate school or, or in this discipline? And I just don't see evidence of it.
0: Do you think he was working in conjunction with someone else?
1: No, I again, I I try to take a more innocent view uh, of of Sitchin, that he was content to sort of ima- reimagine the material, and then came to believe his own mythology, and, and then went looking for it. Um, I don't right. think he had anybody, you know, work on texts for him. Uh, you know, my, my big thing is look. For for you to to sort of gain traction, whether you're Sitchin or von Daniken or any other ancient astronaut theorist or r- really anybody in anything, you should not be afraid to submit your work to peer review. Now I know you know that that d- depending on who you get, what you might find a journal that's got a few cranky people on on the editorial board, and they and they might filter you out. Okay, I get that. but if you submit something to ten or fifteen journals, that's really not going to happen. If it's good work, somebody's going to recognize it as good work and it's going to be publishable, and they may even you know publish a little disclaimer or they may ask somebody to contribute to that volume that takes a contrarian position. That happens all the time in scholarship and and mm-hmm. you know scientific and journals and the humanities, whatnot. it They're not afraid to publish. Something that some of their reviewers aren't going to agree with. So why aren't you doing that? You know, why don't you submit this these ideas to peer review? Um, Sitchin, of course, never did that. Uh, I've never found any of the you know the more bizarre claims that he and and those who sort of follow his work have used and drawn into their own work. I've never seen anything resembling again the, these sort of critical ideas to his thesis uh, in any reference material, any journal articles, you know, anything that, that would have been put through the peer review process. So I don't think he could lean on on someone who actually knew what they were doing. Right. Uh, because if you know what you're doing, you're not going to be, you're not going to be writing this this set of ideas, especially in the case of the Anunnaki. Because again, it's not a question of translation. It's a question of does it even exist in the tablets,
2: I think you do a very good job on the site of of doing a kind of a uh, I don't know item by item breakdown or slash takedown, but but some of the things you do are like really like uh, I don't know what the right word is bold and should be definitive. I guess it's like the words that are not there. Okay, period. Right. <laughs> some of them are more <laughs> subtle, and and uh, I like those too. I thought I thought. Uh, people should check out the website. Obviously, we'll put a link to it in our show notes. But um, this has come up before in some of the other biblical studies books I've looked at, talking about the role of planets uh, Mm -hmm. in that sort of Bronze Age time. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, it it was Israelites, uh, biblical writers, again, were, on one level, they were no different, you know, than anybody else. You know, the the Israelite cosmology is very consistent with you know, conceptually anyway, with like Mesopotamian cosmology, Egyptian cosmology. You know, and, and part of that is this notion that the stars, again, celestial objects, heavenly objects, were, were either deities, they were they were alive and and were actual deities, or they were sort of under the control of deities. Well, why would they think that? Well, it, it's not real difficult to imagine you know you look up at the sky and you see things move you know change position that's what living things do they move uh if if it you know if it doesn't stay there well it, it you know maybe it's dead or something like that. but if you see it move a few times then you know that something's going on up there um, and it's not like they can they can uh you know abstract again the way they do they don't have any sort of uh, you know scientific understanding of these things and so they know they didn't you know i didn't put those things up there, and you know they've always been there and they they kind of move around, so something's going on up there and and we don't do that, so who's li- you know well the gods must do that there there must be some sort of divine explanation uh, for what the the celestial objects are doing, so that led to you know various expressions of you know uh, assigning. You know, either deity names or you know attributes or whatever. Again, to certain objects in the sky, Uh, Israelites are are a little bit different because they're you know they're there. There's there's specific commandments against doing that kind of thing, although it really didn't prevent a lot of them from doing it. Uh, There are lots. There's lots of material in the Bible about. Uh, even people thinking they're they're worshiping the god of Israel correctly if they bow down to the sun and because that's the biggest one and the brightest one and, and well surely you know that that must be okay and so there even even in the prohibitions even though they're there there you'll still see this kind of thing show up in in the Hebrew Bible um, linking it again to the to the god of Israel it, it's it's much more freer in, in other places because they don't have these these prohibitions. But the cosmology, again, is kind of the same. Um, you know, we could talk about Israelite cosmology too. That the Bible is very consistent with it with what's going on around them. It if you read literally, okay, if, if you just you know if you're consistent in your literalism, let's put it that way, then Genesis describes a round flat Earth. Uh, covered by a dome to which affixed are affixed the stars. Uh, some of them again are are living. Some of them are not. You know they they're they're totally stationary. Uh, you have you know windows in heaven. You've got you know the waters under the earth. You've got water surrounding the earth. I mean all these things uh, are present in not only Genesis but in the Hebrew Bible. So Israelite cosmology is very consistent with you know with its ancient Near Eastern uh, milieu. And viewing the stars as divine beings is, is part of that. Um, you know, they they didn't they couldn't know better, you know, than than what they did.
0: And um, has Sitchin, I've read that uh, some of his beliefs have inspired religious cults and religious sects.
1: Do you know anything about that? Well, I, th- I think boy, is that being. Too generous, <laughs> um, you know. On, on the one hand, I'd have to, I'd have to kind of know what what people are specifically thinking about. I think the Planet X stuff, again, even though you know Sitchin, his his early works, when he's talking about you know Nibiru, he's not linking it to, um, you know, things like 2012 and whatnot. That that happened later uh, when others did it, and you have you have cults. You know that we're really into that, and and frankly, still are. I mean, they, mm-hmm. you know, cults are like that. They just they just don't dry up overnight when something doesn't turn out to be what what was predicted. <laughs> so you know you, you, you have you still have that going on. So can we lay that at Sitchin's feet? Well, a little bit. You know, he he might have inspired some element of that. Um, some people might hear what you just said and think of uh, like the comet Hale Bop incident. Uh, that was much earlier than 2012, where uh, you know the Heaven's Gate cult—they had a bunch mm-hmm. of people commit suicide, and that was that was with a specific comet. It wasn't really uh, Nibiru, and Sitchin didn't really have anything specifically to do with that. But um, you know, you you get that kind of thing with a few elements of what he did right. So even if he didn't do it himself, he um, he gave people the tools, I guess, to uh, you know to to take his ideas and and run that direction with it. Right. Yeah. It seems like,
2: um, he, he's been, um, uh, I don't know what you call it when you like take someone else's stuff and sort of take pieces off that you want and sort of repurpose Mm -hmm. them for your own mythology. That, that seems to happen. Cherry picking. Yeah. Well, cherry, (laughs) and and it's not, I mean, it's not to the point of exclusivity or, you know, or just to support things you, it's, it's just like it feeds into like these little little nodules feed into sort of this sort of generic space uh, alien ancient alien type stories. I, I don't know why yeah. exactly, but they they certainly all seem to like grab what they like and ignore what they don't. Um, so maybe it is cherry picking in that sense. Yeah. Understand. That's our yeah.
1: whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms, and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Chinwag Pod and Wagon. Well, I, I think you know you, you you guys did an episode with uh, was it on your show or was it archaeological fantasies the, with Jason Colavito? Um, you know, going back to the the horror literature and the, the yeah, that was Colavito's, literature. yeah, yeah,
2: on on yeah. Archie fantasies, yep.
1: Yeah, and that's really important um, to recognize because you know you have. I think the reason there well, there are a number of reasons why this idea still fascinates because you have people who you know look at ancient alien theory, and and Sitchin certainly fits into this because of his talk about how humanity was created by by the Anunnaki uh, as a slave race. Um, they, they don't like. Darwinism. You have people who don't like Darwinism, and they don't like creationism the way it, it's typically articulated. And so this provides kind of a middle ground uh, where you get, you know, some alternative form of of origins that is that sort of pokes both of the other two in the eye, you know, and 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 kind of you know people like that that they're they're sticking it to both of the other possibilities, and then this becomes something to work with and it, it it has elements of you know mystery and wonder again because you, you have these alien gods you know involved and and there's this this other world that that is you know beyond the world that science tells us about or traditional re- religion tells us about and it has this feel of again we're, we're, we're tapping into esoteric secret knowledge so you know those ideas float a lot of boats <laughs> Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they they attract a lot of attention and, and they, you know, unfortunately, you know, for both the, the scientific community and, and the religious theological community, uh, you, I, I personally look at that and think, have we done such a really bad job here of making what we, what these other two say so boring, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and it's so unfascinating that people just feel like, man, I got to go to this third one here just to to enjoy thinking about deep things like human origins. You know, I I have to go to this other one because the other two are just so plain Jane and, you know, they they just, they, they want to dump it for whatever reason. And I think Sitchin's work really does sort of play on that string um, and and really gets attention because of that. Uh, But you, 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 you folks have done, you know, a lot of episodes on like, you know, fantastic archaeology and anything that seems out of place allows people to poke the other two positions in the eye.
2: There's always going to be a type of personality that's attracted to the outlier idea, right? I mean, just,
1: Mm -hmm. uh,
2: there, there, it just, who, whether they're being contrarian or they're just the, those people can't possibly know. Everybody thinks that there's gotta be
1: another answer that, that kind of approach. So, Mm -hmm. um, see, I, I have found that both in the Christian community, and also in the what, what I guess, for lack of a better term, we'll call the alternative, you know, fringe archaeology community, they they both tend to, you know, caricature scholarship generally, and I'm, I'm including the humanities here, and also science, you know, again as this this sort of arrogant, uh, dismissive beast that you know claims it has every answer. And then the, the, that caricature becomes a thing that turns people off, you know, to, you know, science or to, you know, mainstream religion or something like that. And that, I mean, you run into people like that, you know, if you go to academic conferences, yeah, sure, we can all, you know, if, if we put this description on the table, everybody there would, would think of one professor or one scientist that, yeah, that's them. But for the most part, the, the community just doesn't think that way and and the more you you actually get into you know good literature uh, academic literature you find out that there really is a willingness to say you know i don't know or we don't know or we're still thinking about it or or we're <laughs> we're, we're, we're landing here because we don't really have a better place to land but we might land somewhere else a year from now i, I mean the, there is a a certain amount of of willingness to to think about things and to change positions and and, and do that it, it's not this monolithic um, again, arrogant, dismissive thing, and you know maybe we just need a better way to 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 market the fact that this isn't really what what it's about. It it, it it's you know to defy the caricature. Maybe that would help. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm being a little bit of Pollyannish there, but I, <laughs> I still hold some you know some hope that that kind of thing matters. Um, people just are not exposed to really the best work. Uh, in science, it doesn't filter down. I I could get cranky at at this point. So, so if I get if I get cranky here, just tell me. But I, I have a real I, I, I have a real problem with the way not only people in my discipline, like biblical studies or theological discourse, but any you know, pick any discipline, how the academic community does so little to make sure that the real research. Does filter down to the masses, to the mm-hmm. non-specialist. Now it, it happens here, and there. your your show is an example of it. You know, Jason's blog is a, is an example of it. Stewart's you know podcast is an example of it. This can be done. Uh, you know, all these ancient astronaut theorists and enthusiasts running around. Oh, scholars and scientists are so mystified as to how this was built, and oh, they they just look at this and they just sort of you know. They're, they're they just start babbling and you know they lose their minds and curl up in the fetal position because they just can't grasp it no actually no actually there's like 20 peer-reviewed articles on on this particular thing that you think that's the scientific community will never touch and can't possibly process it's just that that stuff isn't released on the internet for free yeah. that lives in academic journals
0: a lot and, of the, the terminology they use is very difficult for lay right. people to understand it's, as well.
1: It's filled with jargon. It, it, it's filled with you know endless qualifications out the wazoo because you you know you got to make sure that everybody who's reading it in peer review knows that you've read everything else. You know it, it's so dense, but you know it, it's there. It, it's actually there, and so somebody needs to come along and say, you know what we could take this material and make it translatable. We can make it decipherable to the the, the non-specialist and, and sure there's people who can do that, but, but who are the people who take the time Mm -hmm. to do that? Because the the people producing the, the real scholarship um, there really is something to the publisher parish thing, you know, early in a, in a scholar's career that that's legit. Um, It is a concern. uh, And then, you know, you you spend enough time sort of writing for your own colleagues and and let's be honest that's the stuff you're really interested in and so you want to spend your time doing that even if you have tenure that that's the most fun to you what it, what doesn't feel like fun is is saying to the to the scientist or to the scholar hey can you take this journal article that's 15 pages long on some really narrow topic and can you can you reduce that to 500 words and still have it be kind of accurate but don't use the jargon in it make it decipherable to the That's a lot of work. Yes. And people just don't want to do that work. And they're different and so worlds really. They're, they're totally different worlds. <laughs> totally different worlds. And but it, to me it's important that that people you know it's not like I'm I'm saying you know so you know people you know listening out there I'm not I'm not saying look this needs to be fifty percent of your of your job you know this needs to be fifty percent of your time try doing two or three in a year because if enough of you did that if if twenty of you did that okay that's forty fifty sixty articles living somewhere that are going to get you know reasonable traffic that someone can at least find and get access to better information why why does it have to be just the internet you know why does that have to be the pool of knowledge for the non-specialist um you know and 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 unvetted you know and it it, it's it's random there's no site that exists that you know if you go to this site you're going to be able to read it and understand it and it's going to be a a a a readable version of stuff that has survived peer review. Why can't we have sites like that? And and I realize that we, you know there are a handful of them but they don't get promoted They're, there's no there's no sort of coherent strategy you know to to make to have this clearing house of really good information like this. But you know something needs to be done like that because if I mean, if I... it's not people people are going to find what they find and it's hard to shoot at them. Because, well, at least they searched for something. Yeah, you found garbage, but you you were trying, and this is kind of what came out, and oh well.
0: So i think it's a shame this sort of thing isn't supported by academic communities i know within my own field of linguistics that i write about a lot of fringe topics and i uh, just do that for my blog and um but it's just not you know you're not going to get funding for these kinds of things mm. and it's really people who are hobbyists like myself and and you and Stu robbins who are putting out these these blogs and trying to correct a lot of these myths and misconceptions
1: yeah I, and I I mean I go to the academic conferences every year in in my field and invariably I have somebody come up to me and say why do you do that
0: and yeah I get <laughs> Why do you go time. on
1: this show you know why do you go to this conference well and, and again when you, if they're patient enough to hear you out that that look scholarship is supposed to serve the community why is that a foreign concept Mm-hmm.
2: Well, it, um, it's been a struggle. I mean, if you think about going back to Carl Sagan, for example, apparently he took a lot of heat from the academic side of the world because he was trying to popularize stuff and people saw it as an ego trip right. and lots of other things. And But he's had a huge impact. I mean, a yep. huge impact culturally because he simplified science uh, down to the point that a lot of people could understand it and be exposed to it for the first time. Um,
1: yep. Yeah. It it's it's really a it is unfortunate because on the one hand I, I know scholars who won't even publish much in um in the academic literature because they're it it's it's analysis paralysis. Oh, I can't publish this because there's still something that I have to think about,
2: you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: well like like that's gonna change, you know. Like, like, like people who do publish stuff they're done thinking about what they write oh, of course they're not you know but 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 you have people that are just they're petrified by the fear of being critiqued in even the slightest way yes. you know like like I something or so you, you take them off the table what about everybody else it, you know I, I think you know then it becomes again the chore of trying to make this, Trying to communicate to someone who really doesn't speak your language, doesn't know the first thing about your field, uh, and that most of what you would really like to say would be right over their head. But yet they have an interest in this thing, and they're exposed to bad stuff. you are really flawed. Mm
2: -hmm. I I am envious of the boldness. I'm envious of the boldness with which the ignorant will speak their mind. That's... (laughs) I...
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, when it comes to things like stereotypes and just yeah, mis- misconceptions, you know, people are very emboldened.
2: Well, the, the, the simple thing, mean, what you're kind of pointing to is that the way people reach conclusions in academia is 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 one uh, of intense scholarship and and careful study, and as a consequence, it's a slow process. The result, Barely. the results mm-hmm. are obfuscated from the average reader. And and then only appreciated by people who are specialists, and mm-hmm. and it's tough. And yep. and, and in, the, in the general public, you if just speaking, science is my f- fan thing. But but it, it, people conflate uh, science and technology, for example, and that bugs me. Like people will say, "Yay, science!" and they hold up their iPhone. Well, that that's a piece of technology. It's, it's it. You, people use science to get there, but science is a methodology for figuring out what's factual and real and reproducible versus what's not. and And there's different methodologies and different ways to approach the world. and you can use those different approaches and live a perfectly healthy life. My parents don't have that worldview. they they're in a very different place, but the world lets them get by just fine. They're doing fine. and I love them very much, and I, I don't want to argue with them about their worldview. but, this whole approach uh, of uh, of the media is one where if it's a mystery and it's fun, that gets air. But if it seems like it would make people have to think, it mm-hmm. doesn't. And I don't understand why that is necessarily. But apparently, it's tied to advertising. you know, I, I don't really know exactly. But but
0: anti intellectualism. Yeah, but. It, 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 it,
2: The world is complicated, and everything's more complicated than anybody can know. And and even the the best experts in a field or an expertise or an area of study, you know, they may work their whole lives and just kind of get a hold of what's going on, you know? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I I understand that that complexity is hard to distill down into manageable chunks, and I'm I'm sympathetic. Uh, In fact, we wouldn't be doing this show if we didn't think it was somewhat possible, right? But, But... I, I, and I wish I had an answer as well, but I, I'm very sympathetic. You're, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. Uh, that that uh, it's it's a hole in, in in our culture, and it needs to be addressed. And I hope yeah, we're
0: trying to bridge it
2: exactly. I hope in some small way we're helping. But but you're right. That's. Uh, it, the idea, if I talk about we don't know where these things came from, was it aliens? I mean, if you look at the Ancient Aliens television show, probably 70 or 80 percent of the content is them saying, was it? What if? You know, it's little questions mm-hmm. with pretty pictures. And, <laughs> and that,
1: that's. Yeah, we, we, we have to get people to realize that, that questions are not answers.
2: Yeah and, yeah.
1: and they're not even evidence. They're just questions. You know, that, mm-hmm. that that's what Good they point. are.
2: It, it's, um, the, it's a very pretty approach. It's the, just like when I was in middle school. And, you know, would it be cool if, you know, Superman and the Hulk had a fight? Well, they're DC and Marvel. Yeah, but wouldn't it be cool? You know, that's the whole show. Like, it's just a show about wouldn't it be cool if, right? That's. Right, yeah. uh. So uh, I, I don't. You no, know. I, I.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. It, it, really is, it really is a, a problem because now, now I work for a software company. And, you know, just just a little glimpse, you know, and, and we have these conversations all the time. Man, we'd really like to develop, you know, this this or that database, you know, for the academic community. And, and we know what's coming, you know, when we propose something like that. Okay, you'd produce this wonderful thing for the 20 people who care. <laughs> okay. But, but now let, let's let's add up the cost, you know, that, that you have your time and this other person's time, and it takes X number of weeks or months or years, you know. In, in other words, how are we going to recover that cost? Because we, ha- we do have to remember that we're actually a business, and businesses can do all sorts of cool things. But if they never cover their costs, they won't be doing cool things for very long. True. Right. So, you know, you, you, you have this, this, this money aspect you know, to it. So inside our building we're always thinking okay how many of these again I'm speaking as as one of the the academic content people in the building this is not representative of the whole company but I'm thinking like how many of these sort of lame things can we create that that will will still serve people at a certain you know point it'll it'll still take them from where they are a little a little notch further down the road to a better understanding of something, how many of those can we create that lots of people will buy so that we can justify doing this other thing over here mm. that, that we really are tracking on, at least in, I de- in my department, you know, that, that sort of thing. So you, you have that, you've got, if it's, if it's like grant funding, well, where does that money go? That money's going go to go the, to the serious science or the serious research, mm. uh, just by definition, uh, even private donors, they want to know, okay, if you do this, if I give you this money to do this thing, what is the payoff either for us or for the wider community? It it, it has to be, what we're talking about has to be marketed. I hate to use that term, but it has to be marketed that it it, it does add value. it It supplies, it fills a need, okay? It touches a nerve, it fills a need. And so, that's why it needs to be done, and and if you care about this thing, that's why you need to contribute to it. Um, it. It's not you know to make profit or, you know to 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 use up your you know, this this item in your budget that says we have to give money away to do X, Y, or Z, and then justify it. Okay, let's try to justify something over here. Let's take a little bit of this and make its own category, you know, so we can play one off against the other, but. I still think, again, these things can be done. There just have to be enough people, you know, who, who care. And then if there are people who care, then there have to be people who will, will sort of donate their time. Because they're not going to make money producing that article for the non-specialist. It's not going to raise their salary any with, with, their, you know, with their university you know, as they sort of climb up the ladder, either on their way to or after tenure. It, it's not going to count in those ways so they really have to think about it as i'm doing this for a good reason and that's good enough that's sufficient
2: yeah it's something fundamental i think is going to have to change in our culture for for that kind of thing to get a real boost because the sort of i don't it's almost like a prestige project from an intellectual perspective it matters Mm -hmm. culturally it matters to pushing us further along the the line to knowing more about things but but if you can't pay your bills you know that then you're stuck right you and can't so,
1: do it
0: right so
2: i i am very very sympathetic because like most we people should go who,
1: back to the patronage system well
2: the pay you know i don't know who our medici would be but uh you know if, if right. you know
0: <laughs> patreon
2: well it's if, if good well, obviously patreon <laughs> But, you know, clearly if, if somebody from Google wanted to sponsor me going into Monster Research full-time, I'm in, right? You know, yeah, that, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, the, the things we're interested in, uh, you know, any academic is always struggling with, you know, getting funding. I mean, that if you're in the pure sciences, you've got to find, you know, you spend more than half your time doing grant r- proposals. It's just, you know, oh, yeah. you're not doing the thing you want to be doing. You're doing the thing you have to be doing so that you can do the but, thing you want to do. It's it's
0: Yeah, all the drudgery.
2: Yeah, it's challenging. I, Oh, so but speaking of challenging in science, since this is supposed to be the science show about monsters, I I, I do want to ask a little bit about the cuneiform tablets that you're talking about mm-hmm. here. Um, what what is the content of these ancient tablets? I mean, we didn't really even talk about what cuneiform is. Maybe we should just a little bit about what what is this material he's actually looking at when he, or, or would have been looking at had he been able to read it if he could.
1: Cuneiform is is a term that really refers to the the instrument used to create the characters on on the clay tablets. So these, these little wedge, it's a little stylus. You use this instrument to create a graphic representation, you know, of of the language. And of course, in their medium was clay tablets, and then they used the little stylus to make little wedge marks. And so that becomes the graphic means by which they record and, of course, preserve their language. And, and, Cuneiform texts uh, could be in different languages. For instance, the, the Sumerians came up with this idea you know, again to create this script, you know, this this system of graphic representation. And their innovation was adopted by another civilization in Mesopotamia, the Akkadians, that uh, you know superseded them. And it was also a convention you know, adopted by other cultures, again, to preserve, you know, their own language. So there's, there are different languages, different civilizations that have recorded their thoughts through the same means, you know, cuneiform writing. Uh, it's not just Sumerian. And it's, it's also not even just Mesopotamian. You have, for instance, at Ugarit, which is a city in ancient, or I, I, well, what would be roughly ancient Syria, they use the same technique, but they're they used it to make an alphabet for their language. Sumerian and Akkadian are not alphabetic, they're syllabic uh, in in their nature. So it could be different languages, different civilizations using the same uh, kind of script. Now what's really important, especially when we talk about Sitchin, okay, let, let let's say, you know, we, we're having this discussion and the the lights go on in the in the Sitchin promoter's head that boy I Wow, i I went and did that search on that website, Mike showed me, and he's right. you know that this some of this stuff just doesn't exist. So let's take that off the table. And then the argument becomes, well, you're saying that you know Sitchin is wrong in his you know translation, and of course, we can argue whether Sitchin did any translation at all, but we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. You know you're you're wrong about what this word means, and, and Sitchin says it means this, and you say it means that. So we're at a stalemate. Well, actually, we're not. Because what's really interesting is in the, in the case of the Akkadians and the Sumerians, was that when the Akkadians adopted the cuneiform script from the Sumerians, they created what were called lexical lists. That's our name for them. What they are is the bilingual dictionaries. So when the scribes, uh, the Akkadian scribes, were making lists of their own Words, their own vocabulary, you know, for their students and you know, for to you know, save for posterity as well. They would, in a second column, put the Sumerian equivalent. Now, Akkadian is is a language that we have piles, and I'm I'm talking tens, hundreds, of thousands of tablets in various stages of, uh, you know, Akkadian or Assyrian or Babylonian. Again, and there are different regional dialects as well. There are just piles and piles of this stuff. So there, th- that language is very well known. It's, it's East Semitic, if we want to get into, into the, sort of the geography. So it's a clearly understood language, and that makes these lexical lists, these bilingual dictionaries, really valuable because there's no ambiguity as to what the Akkadian term would mean. And if they align it in a bilingual text, a bilingual you know, lexicon, dictionary, with a Sumerian term, that is of of tremendous significance for understanding what the Sumerians meant, okay, what their own language meant. So this whole idea of of someone who wants to promote Zechariah Sitchin's material, uh, mm-hmm. e- you know even getting past the point of the stuff that doesn't exist, and they're arguing about tra- translations. oh, Mike, you say this word means this, but Sitchin says it means you know, the fiery rockets, or you know some kind of spacecraft or something. Well, let's go look at a lexical list. Right. And, and we can see what the Sumerian term meant and then read the text in terms of how the writer intended to be understood. And guess what? It's not talking about spaceships and visits from aliens from Nibiru. Okay, It's still not talking about any of this stuff. So I like to put it this way to people. Look, here's the choice that you have to make. I'm either going to let the Akkadians and the Sumerians define their vocabulary for me, or I'm going to let Sitchin do that. Which of those two propositions seems more reasonable? Yeah, and, think- and you're left with, I would hope, like, well, duh. But people people believe this because they want to believe it. It fills some you know kind of gap, or it has the element of mystery that we talked about before and, and, and contents them more, it entertains them more it fascinates them more than something else,
0: yeah, I think a lot of people would read what Sitchin has to say, and then they just don't pursue it any further. and they're not interested in in looking at this uh, evidence. they're they're just, as you yeah. say, believing what he says
1: and and i can I can be honest, look, this i I'll, I'll grant you i I enjoy it, but I'm a geek, okay? <laughs> I mean, I, I get it. Most people aren't going to care. It's going to be just you know like just the, the the most boring thing that they can possibly imagine. and 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 anyone who is passionate about a particular field, whether it's linguistics or archaeology or some thing in science, it's hard for us to imagine how people wouldn't be fascinated, you know with with what fascinates us. Sure. But the reality is, most people don't care. And so when they come across a claim, you know, in, in a Sitchin book or something else, you're right. They're not gonna be tenacious about tracking it down mm-hmm. and, and finding out. They're they're going to believe whatever they read in this source. And if they go talk to someone, you know, friend at work, you know, minister at, at church or some person down the block or or even if they email you know like a a a real scientist and of course they don't you know they don't get an answer or they get something that's you know doesn't feel satisfying they're just going to conclude ah i've stumbled across something that people don't want to look at or they can't address you know they're going to fill in these gaps and then it becomes truth by anomaly or truth by silence truth by neglect or something else like that and and that's good enough for them that that's that's where the road is going to end for them
2: so what if we took that problem all right of of this material being a little bit dry and hard to get into and we combined it with podcasting so that people (laughs) could just subscribe to this cuneiform uh material you ready we could call it feet of clay (laughs)
0: <laughs> I knew a pun was coming there.
1: Right, right. Uh, yeah, Very nice, like I, I, I died a little bit, so... <laughs> Mission accomplished.
0: Uh, well, let's move on to the the last question then. Uh, so, Michael, the question we ask all of our guests on the show, what's your favorite monster?
1: Oh, th- this one is actually pretty easy for me. Uh, it's got to be the Loch Ness Monster. Okay. It, nice. it, it is, and I and the reason I say that is because that's the one I wish the most was real. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did my first book report in junior high school on the Loch Ness monster.
2: Wow, nice.
1: That that was it. You know, when 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 we were introduced to this concept of book reports, and and we actually had to do one, I it, it took me five minutes to know what I wanted to do
0: did you write it from a skeptical perspective or did you believe <laughs> know, in it well, then
1: it, it was basically a book report on uh i i tried it was it was above my you know my my knowledge grade then but i tried to review or go through roy mackle's book nice on uh you know sea serp sea monsters and then and then i tied that to somebody else's book on uh, the loch ness monster so i had two sources uh for my my book report so it wasn't it wasn't really skeptical, but I I wouldn't put it in the in the overly gullible you know kind of thing either. So
2: no, but I, you I, took I something you cared about and used it to learn how to write a paper. That's fantastic, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> so, that, so that was that was my eighth grade adventure, you know, into that. And I again, that's the one I I wish the most that I could could go see, which is why I, I'm one of these people that I have to confess I would love to see somebody clone a dinosaur or clone a woolly mammoth yes i would go i would pay to see that i don't care if it's as big as a chicken what? <laughs> I'd, still go, I'd still go to see it yeah, yeah we, we did an episode
2: on thylacines that the, the sort of work they're doing on trying to bring that species back i i i too would be very interested in, in what they could do that it's a it's a field of uh i'm very uh it's like, yeah, there's ethical questions and yeah. you know, we don't know what the risks are. Yeah, all that. But it's cool, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah
0: I, one day. Right, I, <laughs> I, need to I, do I, it to find I'm out. Just there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm exactly the same place. Have you guys read How to Build a Dinosaur? No, I've no. got
2: it. It's on yeah. my reading list. Oh, uh, that that's a great book.
1: Yeah. And and I, I'm just fascinated by the idea of reverse engineering the genetic code. Again, and people people need to understand they're not talking about changing anything they're just talking about flipping switches yeah we, we... And, and if you could do that and produce a dinosaur um, man I'd yeah I'd pay for that I <laughs> <laughs>
0: sounds like a project for you
1: yeah <laughs> it would be very cool
2: i I, I... You're right, in theory the mater- the information's still in there. It would be fascinating to unlock it i th- we've talked to a guy who did get as far as like getting uh chicken embryos to have teeth, you know mm-hmm. they don't bring them to i I'm torn because I guess maybe it's for the best that I'm not in those fields because if i <laughs> if if I don't know that I would stop those embryos, I'd want to have a chicken with teeth. I want to see what happens, right but they always they always terminate them really early. And just examine the, you know, the, the embryos. But I, I, I'd like to see if, what a chicken with teeth behaves like. I, I'm curious.
0: So. Oh, in the future, I, I think these things will become more acceptable. I hope it, anyway.
2: You know, there's insufficient mad scientists out there, right? So,
1: <laughs> Yeah, and, I, and again, I, I don't want to pretend like there aren't ethical issues. I, I know there are, but again, I, I'm just trying to be transparently honest. That, that's <laughs> the one, that's something I want to see. It is um, very cool. So. Yeah, it it would just be awesome.
2: Well, Mike, I I want to say thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. This was
1: really interesting.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. It was indeed.
1: Well, I love your show. So if you have guests, plug your show. You know, listen to Monster Talk. I mean, it's, I love it.
0: Thank <laughs> you very much. Thanks, Thanks thank a you. lot. Monster Talk.
2: Thanks for listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stolzner.
2: Today you heard Dr. Michael Heiser, author of the Sitchin is Wrong website, discussing the lack of evidence for Sitchin's ancient astronaut's interpretation of ancient texts from Sumer. We'll be talking about Sitchin from an astronomy view very soon in an upcoming episode. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of myself or my guests, and do not necessarily represent the views of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you'd like to find out the real views of Skeptic Magazine, let's split up. You check out your local newsstand, and Shaggy, Scooby, and I will go look in that old abandoned tower. You want us to go into that tower? We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening.
1: Do you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic
2: content. The pedantic in the audience may want me to say that the ancient country is Sumer and that the ancient language is Sumerian, and that there is no such place as Sumeria, sadly, there just isn't time to include that fascinating detail in today's episode.
0: Yes, and I'd have gotten away with it too, if it wasn't for these blasted kids and their dogs. And it would have been mine if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. And I'd have done it too, if you kids hadn't come along. You blasted kids, why
1: didn't you mind your own business? And
0: I'd have found it if it wasn't for you snoopers.
1: And I wish you'd have minded your own business. Blasted meddling kids.